We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Heard a story a long time ago about a preacher that was asked to do a funeral. I've been asked to do funerals since 1982. You never know um, all different kinds of personalities, all kinds of people. Uh, but I've always, even in the town where I used to live, I always told the, the funeral home people, uh, if someone doesn't have a pastor, you call me because I, it's an opportunity to share Christ in uh, circumstances when people are more ready to hear. So I've always uh, counted that as a great opportunity. One man was asked by uh, a man of the town, would you do my brother's funeral? Now he knew this, this man and he was, uh, he was something else. And he said, I just don't know whether I can do your brother's funeral or not. I knew him and he said, no, I just want you to do that. And he was really insistent. And I said, sir, I just don't know whether I can really do that. I'm not sure what I, you know, what I could say about him. And he said, I want to give you $10,000. He said, well, maybe let me think about it just a little while. And um, so ended up and he said, okay, I'll do that. And he said, I want you to do my brother's funeral and I want you to call him a saint. I want you to call him a saint. He said, now I know I can't do that funeral because there's no way that I could call your brother a saint. I knew what he lived like, what he acted like and everything. And finally, the, the preacher agreed to do that. And they're at the service and and he's talking about the gospel, of course, the most important thing. And he, he gets down to where he's going to talk a little bit about the man. And he said, here lies so-and-so. His brother's out there in the congregation saying, call him a saint. And uh, the preacher's up there and he, he said, here lies so-and-so. He, he was a dirty, rotten rascal. He was a no good. But compared to his brother out there, he was a saint. So... There's ways to get by some things, and uh, I love this passage we're going to look at here tonight. It encourages me. Those of you who might be uh, uh, taking, uh, joining us online, please, uh, please know that you're important. We're glad that you're here with us and all of you that are here in the room. Luke chapter 17, beginning with about verse 11. We're privileged here tonight to be able to serve and to partake of communion. Communion, Jesus taught through the Apostle Paul, is a looking back to the cross, and it's looking forward to Jesus coming again. As often as you do this, you do this in remembrance of me. You remember Calvary and what he paid the price for us, and he said, until I come again. And Jesus is just as sure coming back as he was that he came the first time. And his coming back is imminent. It could take place anytime. So I want to just encourage you to enjoy the scripture. The, the scripture is, it is intended to instruct us, to challenge us, to reprove us when we need it, to um, give us courage and faith and hope. But it also ought to be fun. It also ought to be exciting to you. When Jesus was raised from the dead and he appeared in several different forms, we're about to celebrate the Resurrection Sunday coming up in the church. No other more important event in all of history. And we invite you to come and just to worship our Lord. He is a risen Lord. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that should be the message that goes around the world. They were walking on the road to Emmaus with him and he appeared in another form. They didn't recognize him. And he, he listened to all of them. They said, oh, you have not heard. You're, are you just a stranger in Galilee and you haven't heard all about Jesus and what he did? And they don't know that he's walking with them. And they didn't really realize until he broke bread together with them. And then he had disappeared and they recognized it was him. But they said a great testimony. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us? while we walked in the way with him. See, there was, a, there was a, an excitement. There was a joy and a peace and a hope in God's word and Jesus speaking to them. And so that's what I pray you can have here tonight. Where the Bible needs to challenge me, it needs to challenge me. Where it needs to convict me, it needs to convict me. I need that. But where it needs to lift me up and encourage me, I need that also. Notice in verse, uh, verse 11 here that Jordan, uh, Jordan read to us, uh, Jared read to us. You all know here at Denton Bible we have Jerry's and Jake's and Jason's and Jordan's and Gerald's and Jarrell's. And when I first came here, I thought, my name is wrong. I'm not going to get hired because I don't have a J in my name. But 
So, sorry, J Jared. Um, he read in verse 11. While he was on the way, a lot of times the children's books start with once upon a time. Uh, my, my son said once upon a time. I'm sorry. I reverted 30 years back. Once upon a time. It's about to gather you together and tell you a story. Oftentimes the Bible says while he was on the way. And this is a very literal instance in history where Jesus is going from one place to another. And that's significant. That phrase will show up again in this short passage. While he was on the way. Uh, do you have remember, remembrances of places you've been? You know, I come up to some of those uh, RVs sometimes, and they have, they have bumper stickers, and they have been all over the world, all over the world. You know, we've got one like, uh, we loved it, and something like that, and that's all we've got. But they've been all over the world. <clears throat> We're lagging behind a little bit. But don't you remember things that uh, vacations your family went on or places you've gone? It's good to remember those. Uh, young people, we used to have printed pictures and we had picture albums. We really did that you could open up and look at. And uh, I, I'm always afraid what's going to happen when uh, the uh, iPhone, the iPhotos and everything, somebody punches the wrong button in some warehouse somewhere. But I remember, maybe do you remember the first time you went to school? How was that for all of you? Did you? Could you just not wait to go to the first grade, kindergarten, first grade? I bet you still remember it because it's impactful, isn't it? Do you remember the, the, maybe the first time you went out on a date? Uh, some of you looking forward to that right now. Your mom and dad, your dad's saying no. Just don't even think about it. The first time you went on a date, how nervous you were. And maybe, uh, do you remember driving off to college or your parents driving you off to college? That was an eventful day. Our son went first five years earlier. We bought him luggage for his high school graduation. It was a hint. But when my baby girl five years later went to college, it was an event. And it was tough on mom and dad. When we kissed her goodbye and said hello, dropped her off at the dorm, we had to, I had to take my wife shopping. I took her to a movie theater. Uh, I took her to dinner. I wanted to get her mind off of what we had just done. But you remember it because you're going somewhere. Someone's going somewhere. Much of our life has to do with going to a new place. We've just moved recently, half a year ago. And so we're learning the neighborhood, what streets to go down. I'm famous for going down what I think is the right way of a street, and they say that it's not the right way for some reason. All the cars are going the other way. So I'm learning where we live. But it's, it's significant that this passage starts out with that, while he was on the way. We know that wherever Jesus is going is just right. And it goes on to say, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Three different locations that the scripture records right there. If you've been to uh, Israel, I'm sure, Tommy just talked about it recently, I'm sure that you have been on a bus, you go up to Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem, and they probably put that, that CD in and you sang Jerusalem, and it's a moving time to go in there and you see the city. I remember one of the, the times that we did that, I looked out to the side of the, the window and I saw a shepherd with his sheep going across the mountains just like they've done for thousands of years. So Jerusalem is inhabited mainly by Jews. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Jerusalem. It is the city of peace. It is the center of the world. It is the place where God's eyes are upon at all time. A place where God chose Abraham to be a new people it is a very important piece of geography on this planet, Jerusalem. So he's going there, and he's going to go passing between Samaria. Samaria, if you remember, was a place most of the time, if you're traveling and you're a Jew, you would go around Samaria. Now, Jesus went through Samaria sometimes, but, but that's very unusual for a Jew to do that. The Bible tells us the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. What we had there was we had a racial problem. The Samaritans were mixed race people because during a time in Israel's history, the Assyrians ca captured them. We have two major capturings 
and captivities, the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivity. These are Assyrians who took many of the Assyrian people and when they took Jews captive, took them back to Assyria, they brought Assyrians and put them in Jerusalem. So what you had was you had two races, two groups of people. What happened later? The Assyrians that were transplanted to Jerusalem began to intermarry with the Jews that were there. And so those people were mixed race between Assyrians and Jews. One of the most famous ones was a woman who came to the well at lunchtime. She came at the high noon because she couldn't come at other times. She was an outcast. She was not welcome. And she just so happened to come to a time when Jesus came to that well. And as he began to talk to her and said, woman, give me a drink of water, she was astounded. How is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me? First of all, I'm a woman. And in that time and in that society, the women did not have a, a relationship and a, a respect the way that you do now. And I hope you do uh, certainly in the church. She was astounded that he, he was talking to her as a woman. And then she was astounded because you being a Jew, I'm talking to me, a Samaritan. When Jesus taught par parables, he taught about a wounded man, a wounded Jewish man that was on the side of the road half dead. And a priest went by and a Levite went by. But who stopped to help him? The good Samaritan. And he drew attention to that man was the least likely one. You know who we're supposed to be as a church? The least likely. The least likely to do the right thing, but we do it anyway because we love Jesus. I'm a least likely. The fact that I'm standing in front of you getting to share God's precious word, this is the most important thing to me. This is my Super Bowl. I don't have anything else that thrills me any more than this right here. If I couldn't do this, I would be miserable. I don't do it that well, but I sure do it with all my heart. And... This is the good word of Jesus. So he's going to Jerusalem. He has to pass by Samaria. Most likely he ran around the edge of it or through the border, not right through the middle of it during this time. And then he was headed to Galilee. So Jerusalem's full of Jews. Samaritan is full of mixed race people, part Jew and part Assyrian. And Galilee. We know that Jesus grew up in Nazareth of Galilee. There were some Jews there, but there also was a lot of Gentiles. If you wonder about who the Gentiles were, that's just everybody else. There were God's people, the Jews, and then everybody else. And often the scripture talks about the people of the isles, the people of the nations, and that's referring to Gentiles. Could we happen to have anyone here that is a Christian, but you are a Jew? You have, you have Jewish uh, heritage in your family? You do. We're so thankful you're here, and uh, we're, we're glad that you know you're Yeshua because Jesus was the best Jew that ever lived. So the location's important. He's going to Jerusalem, passing between Samaria and Galilee. I believe that this represents Jesus came to save everybody. He didn't just come to save the Jews. He was sent to them first, wasn't he? He was sent to the Jews first and they rejected him. John chapter 1. He came unto his own and his own knew him not. Would that not be sad? He came and the religious leaders of the Jews should have said, Finally, he's here. The Messiah is here. Let's go tell everyone. But from the first time he preached in his home synagogue, they tried to kill him. Amazing. But he came to save not only the Jews... But Isaiah wrote 700 years earlier that this one's going to be a light to the Gentiles also. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? Because he offers that salvation to you and me. There's a blindness in part that has happened to Israel, Scripture says. We are people who, they didn't receive their Messiah. We did as other people of the Gentiles. And we provoke them to jealousy until the time of the end. So I believe that this is symbolic that Jesus has come to save everyone, people of all nations. In the book of Revelation, when you read about the vision that John had of heaven, who was there? I saw a great multitude of all people, of all nations, of all tongues. 
there's going to be all different color of skin. There's going to be all different languages uh, spoken there. And that's who Jesus came to die for. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm so glad it's that way. Look at verse 12. As he entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. A few weeks ago, uh, Jordan taught us about that other man who had leprosy. And, and Jordan, didn't you say that you were afraid of leprosy because somebody taught you a little bit about it when you were young? That would be very, very common in that day. His honesty is talking about this was a very serious thing. You didn't have antibiotics to get over it. You didn't have a doctor's procedure that could fix you. Leprosy was so, there was different types of it, but it was so powerful that it would eat away the skin and the joints. And very often there would be people that don't have all their fingers or all their toes because leprosy was powerful. It was a powerful, powerful disease. And so he gets to this village and you might think is at other times in the scripture, there's a whole crowd coming to, to see him and to listen to him. But this time, the first ones that see Jesus, as far as we know, were 10 leprous men. It says they stood at a distance. If you go back in the Old Testament, you find that a leper was commanded in the health laws that Jesus, that God wrote down for the Jews. A leper was commanded, you stay apart. You stay different. You stay separated. Uh, leprosy was contagious to a certain degree. They didn't know how much, just like we don't know how much about many of the things that we confront today. If you got the diagnosis, perhaps you've gotten a diagnosis lately of something and you're in treatment, I, we pray for you. We pray for healing every way possible. But in that day, if you got the diagnosis of being a leper, you really lost your life. You lost your spouse, you lost your children, you lost your home, you lost your job. You would have to live outside the cities, often in caves and tombs, a very lonely existence. You had to live with other lepers. And the Bible also tells us that when someone came near you, you had to yell as loud as you could, unclean, so that someone wouldn't come close to you. Take a moment to just picture that existence. You think we have panic attack, anxiety, and depression today? We do. Pray for one another. My office is always open. I would love to visit. Uh, I have many, many people that are dealing right now that I get to the privilege of praying with, dealing with anxiety and depression. Uh, some of you old tough men, we don't like to admit that, do we? But two different times recently where I've gotten to speak to a group of men Nobody else around. When I taught about depression, one after another one came up and said, I need you to pray for me. We just need to be open and honest. Can you imagine what that would be like with leprosy? Your life is never the same again. Now, there's only two things that could take place. Sometimes leprosy went into remission. I got, got, got hope for you, Jordan. Sometimes leprosy went away and went into remission. Other times, God chose to heal. And that's the way that you got over leprosy. When you got over leprosy, or it seemed to be getting better, God gave specific instructions that you need to go and show the priest. That's going to be important as I keep reading. He entered a village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. In observation, what can we see from that phrase? They know Jesus' name. Is there power in the name of Jesus? There is, isn't there? It's not a slot machine where you say, Jesus, put in another quarter, and you command him to do something. But there's power in the name of Jesus. Did you know even if somebody is speaking falsely about Jesus, someone can hear his name and be saved? Paul said some preach out of uh, contention. But I, I rejoice because Jesus is being mentioned. In the name of Jesus. There's little children our, our little grandson, he's not any more precious than your grandson. Maybe a little, but not, not really. He really isn't, but, oh, he's saying all these words. He's putting sentences together. He's got some paragraphs coming out. 
My goodness, he's intelligent. But you know what I, not really. But you know what I love to hear? I said, Luca, tell me Jesus. And that little boy can say, Jesus. That's the sweetest words I've ever heard. There's power in the name of Jesus. You could be in a circumstance when you don't have time to pray. A long prayer. You could just say the name of Jesus. So this group of lepers stood at a distance, but they cried out Jesus. So they know who he is, at least what he's done. Secondly, they say, Master. Did you know the Bible said that you can't even call Jesus the Lord except by the Holy Spirit? They're calling him Master, Teacher, Rabbi. They're showing him great respect there. So these men had heard probably, hey, there's a guy that's, that's a rabbi in, in Israel. Some are saying he's the Christ, but we have heard about miracles. Can you imagine the, the cautious hope that would have come in those, mind, those men's heart? I say cautious hope. Why? Because they probably had had hope before and it was disappointing. Could he help us? So they cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They're not commanding Jesus what to do. In the name of Jesus, I name it and claim it, and I command this to be done. Don't get caught up with those false teachers. That's what they are. Well-meaning people sometimes, I have problems with those proclaiming and teaching that. They just said, Master, have mercy on us. I don't think they could ask for a greater thing there. Jesus, you're the Lord. Master, I humble myself. I'm the servant. You're the master. Have mercy on us. I used to do a devotion in a, in a rest home for a long time, and there was a great older African-American gentleman. He was taller than I was, and he had the old southern drawl, and I just loved listening to him. His name was Moses. And that's when I think of Moses right now. I think of Moses. And he said one day, right after I was giving the lesson, he said, if you doesn't have time to pray anything else, just say mercy. And everybody just clapped and loved it because Moses was right. Just say mercy. That's what these men are doing. When he saw them, that's not written in there by accident, by the way. Do you know that? When Jesus saw them, my younger brother, two years younger than I, had already accepted Christ, but we had a revival, crusade, whatever you might call it, an evangelistic meeting in our football stadium, Breckenridge, Texas. Anybody watching from Breckenridge? Breckenridge is known uh, back in the 1950s for being a powerhouse in football. Texas football is a little important in some places. They either won or tied five different times in the 1950s for the state championship. They won some in the 40s. Um, they didn't win after the 50s until my years in the 70s. In 1978, we were set to win in our area game. We had two seconds on the clock, and they threw a pass. They were already handing the trophy to our coach. They threw a pass. The other team scored. They beat us, and that team wiped everybody else for the state championship. They just blew everyone else out. We were all the sons. It wasn't my dad who was a player, but we were all the sons of those winners from the 1950s. So when you say Breckenridge, Texas, and football, a lot of people know what we're talking about. But this night, we had an evangelistic meeting. And when the evangelist got through preaching, my little brother that I have great respect for, he's one of the finest Christian men that I know, I would go to war with him. I have gone to war with him. He got up out of those old wooden bleachers and he walked down on that football field. I'd been tackled on that football field. I had been hurt on that football field. I had torn my meniscus cartilage and had to have surgery on that football field. I'd not made too many great plays. I wasn't the best football player, but a few. My mom had watched me play on that football field, and there had been state championships won over and over and over again. But I didn't see anything any greater than the night that my little brother went down, walked on that grass, and he went out there and asked Jesus to be his Lord and his Savior. That was powerful. That was tough. That was cool. 
He told me later, as probably you have said, when that man was preaching to me, I felt like I was the only one there. God was talking straight to me. That's how the Holy Spirit works, doesn't he? Well, I want to tell you here tonight, just like that scripture said, Jesus saw them, he sees you too. He sees everyone in this room. You may think nobody knows about me, nobody cares, nobody knows what I'm going through. I want to tell you, Jesus does, and we do too. We'll stay here and visit with you, pray with you, whatever it takes. But he saw them, and he sees you too. That's how important you are. Notice what happens. He saw them. He noticed their need. He knew their situation. They may have been poor or crippled or uh, there are people today that are ill or homeless, isolated, abandoned, rejected. How many single moms are out there have such great respect, raising children by themselves uh, that need to be shown great respect? He sees you. He sees you late at night when that little baby's got fever and you haven't eaten and you haven't had time to, to take a bath and you're taking care of those children and you work hard. He sees you. The older people that are in rest homes or retirement centers that think, does anybody even know I'm alive? Why am I still alive? I'm not worth anything. He sees them. They have dignity and they have worth. Men and women who've lost their spouses. I looked up the other day and a lot of the men that I have uh, some things to deal with, uh, a lot of them have lost their spouses. A lot of you ladies here tonight have lost your spouses. And there's nothing like that in the rest of the world. Well, I want you to know Jesus sees you. He knows right where you are. Jesus sees you. He knows your name. He knows your need. And just like they saw him, Jesus saw them. The next verse is amazing to me. He said to them, and he could have said, what's the problem, guys? He doesn't do that. He's, he does that before. There was a blind man on the side of the road one time, and he said, what would you have me to do for you? He asked him, but in this case, he doesn't ask them anything. He sees them. He knows what they need. And then he gives them a command, an imperative. The Bible's full of commandments. I love the book of James. Have you studied it recently? There are 50 imperatives in that book. And it's just like he's written right to me and saying, Mike, go do this, 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 this. Ty, Cuban, it's just like if you read James, it's like, Ty, go do this. That's how personal it is. Well, this is a command to those lepers. Go and show yourselves to the priests. Now, we read that 2,000 years later, and it looks like Bible words. But to them, it must have been shocking. Because the only way that you would go as a leper to show yourself to the priests was if your leprosy was re receding, it was going away, or a miracle had healed you. These guys are still lepers. But Jesus says something strange to them. Go show yourself to the priests. If you take down notes, write down Leviticus 14. When a person went to the priest, the priest would examine the spots wherever they were on their body. They would see if the, the, the disease was getting better. There was healing take place. And then they had to go through a, a, an extensive, that's a long chapter, an extensive sacrificial uh, ceremony. If God was healing somebody of, of leprosy, it was time to thank God and to do sacrifice. When God asked for the sacrifices of the Old Testament, it was for us to stop, to give something of ourselves, and to say, thank you, we owe you everything. To stop what we're doing, give something of yourselves. It cost you a bull or a goat or a calf, whatever it was, and to say, thank you. I acknowledge you are doing something great. But Jesus is telling them to go, and they haven't been healed. I believe this is similar to many of the, the miracles in the Gospel of Luke that we're studying, the wonder years. I think it's similar oftentimes. Jesus gave them something to do, to show their faith, to show their willingness to say, if you say it, Jesus, I'll do it. Peter and his buddies have been fishing all night. They're coming in, washing their nets. Jesus comes to them. They're tired. They probably haven't eaten. Their wives are waiting for them at home. And Jesus said, put your boat out a little ways. And Peter is just Peter. I can't wait to get to heaven and sit down with him. He was, he was something else. Peter, 
Put your boat out a little way. Master. Now, he could have said, now, Jesus, we're the fishermen. We know the Sea of Galilee. We do this for a living. We're the professionals. But he says to Jesus, Master, we've been fishing. We've been working all night. One version says, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. That is the description of all my fishing trips. So don't go with me fishing because it'll be that same way. We'll toil hard and not catch anything. But he said, Master, we've toiled all night and not caught anything. But then, one version says, Nevertheless, if you tell me to put out a net, I'll put it out. And that's what's so good about dealing with our Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, Peter. In all your ways, acknowledge him if you tell me to, and he'll direct your path. You remember they put out that? They caught so many fish, they had to get their partners to come over. It was sinking the boat. I surely have never been on a fishing trip like that. Caught so many that your boat's sinking. Jesus gave them something to do. Naaman, the leper of the Old Testament, go wash seven times in the Jordan River. I got better rivers in Damascus, Abana and Farfar. It's cleaner water. He got mad because he didn't want to do what the prophet said. And finally, his men said, if he'd have told you to do some big thing, would you have done it? Yes, go do this little thing. He washed in the Jordan River. One time, two times, three times, six times, and he's still a leper. But he gave him something to do. And on the seventh time, he went down underneath the water and he came up. And the scripture says his flesh was like the flesh of a baby. We got any babies in here tonight? Always bring your babies. I, I love them. Baby skin is so smooth, so smooth. That's what Naaman came up out of that water because he obeyed Jesus. So he's going to give them something to do. I want you to go and show yourself to the priest. Was this going to take some uh, faith on their part? Because they're going to turn around and start walking toward the nearest priest and they're still lepers. They had to be willing to do what Jesus told them to do just because Jesus told them to do it. The greatest times in my life have been when I was willing to do what Jesus told me to do just because Jesus told me to do it. Well, I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like witnessing. I don't feel like... Nevertheless, if you tell me to, I'll do it. And notice what happened. Remember how we started this passage? While he was going, while he was in the way, look what happens next. And as they were going, just like as Jesus was going around Samaria, through Galilee, and to Jerusalem, as he was in the way, when these guys turned around and said, I'm going to do it. Jesus told us to do it. I'm headed toward the, the priest to show him. As they were going, they were cleansed. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful book that talks about our high priest. The Bible teaches us after we've done the will of God, we inherit the promises. That's not legalism. It's not, it's not works salvation. But it's after we turn to the Lord, after we obey him, after we say yes to him. To many as received him to give them the power or the right to become the children of God. God gives us something to do. You remember Tommy says all the time, don't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. Pastor Mel back there, thank you for you being with us. We honor you and your presence here. Uh, I've heard that you've said many times you can't steer an 18-wheeler unless it's moving. I like that. Get going. And that's what these guys did. If Jesus told them to go to the priest, I'm still a leper. But he told me I'm going. So they take off going. And could you picture that? Put yourself in their position. All of a sudden, I don't know whether they felt it. I don't know whether they saw it on themselves first or they saw their buddy. Hey, look what's happening to your hand there. Hey, it's happening to me too. I think sometimes we don't put ourselves in the moment. That would have been a tremendous life-altering miracle. But it happened while they were obeying Jesus. What if they'd gotten ornery and upset? I'm not going. I'm not going. He, I thought he'd come out and do this and command me to make. No, it's while 
they were in the way with him. And that's how you and I grow. That's how our prayers get answered. That's how we get fellowship with one another. That's how the church grows. That's how we get blessings from God. It's while we're in the way with him. That's how we get instruction. This is the way I want you to walk in it. This is the job I'm providing for you. It's good for you to have. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, Colossians 3.15. It's while we're in the way with him. We don't go sit home on the couch and say, okay, I'm waiting for my instructions from heaven. And when they come to me, email, itemized, bullet points, I will get up and start doing whatever he tells me to do. You can wait all the rest of your life. It's while we get going. Go do what you know you're supposed to do anyway. And while we're in the way with him, young people today, and I love to talk to young adults about dating, high school, young adults, college, and I love to talk to them about dating. One of the greatest things about dating advice that I can give them, you pursue Jesus with all your heart, and he will bring, if you're supposed to be married, some aren't, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is a wonderful calling from God. But if you're supposed to be married, at while you're pursuing him, he will bring somebody alongside you that's pursuing him also. And you'll look over there while you're running the race and say, hmm. When I was in the ninth grade, I coached little girls basketball younger than me out of a green station wagon. That's how old I am. A green station wagon, two little cute twins got out on the Presbyterian Church parking lot, and they got out to come join the team. I had two sets of twins on that team. I couldn't tell the difference, so I put the Hearst twins in and the McCullough twins. I never broke them up because I didn't know which one was which. <laughs> Years later, at 19, I was teaching a Bible study for the youth of our town, and God let youth come from all churches all over town, and I was so blessed, and I would drive home from college and back and forth. And a girl got out of a car and walked up there, and I kind of recognized her a little bit, but she didn't look like that little girl from the green station wagon anymore. She had long brown hair, and her name was Holly, and she started coming to that citywide Bible study. And when we were leaving one night, I asked her if she'd like to go out on a date while I was pursuing God and while she was pursuing God. God let us come together. While we're in the way with him, you may not know what all he wants you to do. Just do what you do know he wants you to do. And then excitedly look forward. We've been married almost 35 years. Now we're empty nesters. When I'm at home, she says, don't you have something to do? <laughs> don't you want to get out of the house some a little bit? So it's changed a little bit. But as they were going, they were cleansed. As they obeyed what Jesus said, the power from on heaven was turned on and they were healed. Wouldn't you think they'd all fall down on the ground if they would go to the priest and give all these sacrifices and thank God and acknowledge him? Don't you think if it already started happening, they would turn and thank him? Well, the sad part of this story is next. It says, verse 15, now one of them when he saw that he had been healed, turned back. Glorifying God with a loud voice. He didn't care who heard. And guys, when we get a miracle from Christ, we don't care who hears. When I got saved, I wanted to tell everybody with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet. Do you think this man was grateful? We can either be gratefully humble or humbly grateful. Humbly, grumbly, hateful. I'll mess that one up. We need to be humbly grateful or grumbly, forget it. Uh, he fell on the ground thanking him, fell at his feet giving thanks to him. Jesus is going to ask a question in a minute. Where are the nine? And I ask that question here tonight. I get up and go, come to my office on, uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday mornings to come here and I get out on 380, the American Autobahn. It is a dangerous road. I have seen more wrecks next to me on that road than I have my whole life. I saw one one time, this girl's on her phone, and, and I've seen guys the same way, and, but she was uh, talking on her phone and everything, and then smash, 
she came to church on Sunday night and had this big cast. And I wanted to go up to her and said, if you wouldn't talk on your phone. I didn't do that, though. <laughs> she didn't know I saw her, but I hope she wasn't hurt badly. But I have to fight the traffic to get to work. But on Sunday mornings, I come early to Sunday morning church. And you know what I find myself doing on Sunday morning a lot of times? Apologizing. Dear Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry we, we have traffic jams during the week and we don't have traffic jams for everybody getting to church on Sunday morning. I'm sorry, Lord. I wish it wasn't that way. Because if we really have had a work of Jesus in our life, and I don't have doubt that all of you have. I sure have. We gotta thank him. For another lesson sometimes, Romans 1 is the digression of a nation or a people group that turned away from God. You remember, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worship and serve the creator, creature, uh, creature more than the creation, and uh, more than the creator. And they, they turn to all kinds of vile things. They end up not even wanting God in their knowledge. Do you know the first thing that happens in Romans 1? They're unthankful. They become unthankful. And by the way, when we have Thanksgiving in America, I hear people saying, I thank my mom and I thank my dad and I thank my teachers. That's not what Thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving is to thank God. Be thankful for all those other people, but we're, we're here to thank God. And I know you know that. Preaching to the choir. One of them fell down and gave him glory and honor. When he saw that he was healed, he had to do something. He had to thank the one that gave him for that, that tremendous gift. When I go into a restaurant and I, I bow and thank the Lord the food, I, I almost always say, Lord, thank, the, thank you for the food for all these other people if they haven't asked you. That's not because I'm any better than them. I don't mean that at all. But he deserves to be thanked for the food that we eat, the clothes that we wear, the homes that we live in, the churches that we have in this country. Be a thankful person. The Bible teaches us that he desires to have the sacrifice of our lips giving thanks unto his name. That's the sacrifice he wants now. He didn't want a bull or a goat or a pigeon or a turtle dove. He wants our heart. He wants us to tell people what Jesus has done. Jesus was a Jew sent to the Jews. The Messiah is for the Jews, but they rejected him. And the blessings of salvation were given to a people who were not his people. And these guys... Did you catch the last part of that? This one turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a, who was he? The least likely. The least likely. He wasn't a Jew. He was a half-breed. He was a mixed race. He was a Samaritan that had been told, you don't fit here and you don't fit here. And Jesus says, you fit with me. You fit with me. Jesus answered in verse 17 and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? I wonder if he asked that today. Didn't I hear their prayers in the hospital and their family members better now? I wonder where they are. Are they in church this morning? I don't see them. I, I helped them with those finances. They don't realize what all I did, but... I got it worked out to where their job was okay and they had money for their children and everything. I wonder where they are. I wonder where they are. Are they in church today thanking me? And I wonder if Jesus says the same thing to us. I wonder if he looks at corporate America or in sports and politics and he says, where are the nine? I wonder if he looks at our school and our school boards. Where are the nine? Our college campuses. Where are the nine? Now, there's some godly people in all those places, and praise the Lord for them. I lift them up all the time and pray for them, that they'll continue to be faithful. But there's not many. Jesus said, when, when the Son of Man returns to the earth, will he find faith on the earth? There's a way that leads to destruction. <coughs> he said a lot of people find it, but the way to eternal life, how many find it? Few, few. So I just want to encourage you, and you encourage me. Be the one. You be the one that stops, takes time, <coughs> excuse me, turns around to glorify God and say with a loud voice, I thank you, Lord.
for what you've done for me. You be the one. You be different. And you watch how God will bless you. He says, verse 18, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. I don't know what all Jesus did for that man that day, but he got something better than the rest of them. They got healed from that leprosy. Did it come back? We don't know. But this guy, your faith has made you well. I believe he got salvation. He got spiritual healing, and those other nine didn't. And he was a foreigner. I love that. Because we're all foreigners. Somebody asked me sometimes, do you believe in aliens? I used to say, yes, uh, when my kids were teenagers, somebody came and got them from another planet, put some people in our home that looked like them. And, and I know they did because they were not our kids for a little while. And then they brought them back after they got a little bit older. But guess what we are? We were aliens. We were separated from a holy God. So, yeah, I believe in aliens. Maybe not from another planet, but from this planet. You and I were alienated from God. And he says, hey, how about I adopt you? One of our staff members not too many months ago announced that the final adoption for their little baby, baby James, that you were talking about earlier, was going to be finalized. And mom and daddy were so happy. If you're a believer here tonight, you've been adopted. You got a new family name. You got a new house to live in. And you got a place reserved for you in heaven in God's house because you're one of his. Oh, what could Jesus ask us to do? People say, why? You go to church on Sunday morning. You go to church on Sunday night and... You're somewhere on Wednesday night, and you're, I said, how could I not? All that he's done for me, how could I not? You be the one. Make sure you're saved. Make sure in your church. Make sure you pray. Make sure you study your Bible. Make sure you got a mentor. Be a mentor to somebody else. Make sure you're telling others how Jesus forgave you and changed your life. Your testimony is more powerful to some people than anybody else's. They want to hear from you. Support your church, support your missionaries, get involved in the community to be salt and light and the right kind of witness. Be, be a city that's set on a hill. Be a light that they can see those good works and glorify God. Make a difference by living godly and walk in the neighborhood where you live. And when they stop you and ask you, while you're in the way with him, you can say, yeah, I go to church. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Turn around Fall down and thank the one that saw you, saw your need, and healed you because he deserves it. As we come tonight to the communion table, it's what communion's about. On the last night that when Jesus was going to be betrayed by Judas Iscariot, it's interesting that as the guys come forward to help us, maybe Tony's going to play for us with communion. It was interesting when Judas had sold Jesus out for a few pieces of silver, prophesied hundreds of years before that. He was sent to identify Jesus. You point out which one he is, and Jesus had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter and James and John and the rest of the apostles not far away. And Judas came up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Can you imagine that? Judas was a thief. He was a robber. He was called the son of perdition. He was the betrayer that would give Jesus, the son of God, over to be crucified. And I've always wondered. I was raised in West Texas, and I always thought, no, you got to stop that. Don't let him kiss him because you know what Jesus called him when he started walking up to him? Friend. That makes me feel about less than that tall. Jesus wasn't saying to Judas, you've been a great friend to me. Jesus was saying, I was a friend to you. And you betray the Son of Man with a kiss. Jesus had already called his heavenly Father a word that he only used twice in the Scripture, Abba. That's like Daddy. Daddy. 
If it be possible, would you take this cup, the cup of suffering and death, away from me? But if the only way that it will be possible is I drink it, not my will, but your will be done. God saw you and me. And we not only had leprosy, but we were dead in our sins. He saw you. He saw you what you needed. He saw what I needed. The wages of sin is death. He said, I can't, I'm a holy God. I can't undo that. But here's what I will do for you. For God so loved the world that I'll give my only begotten son. He'll take the wages for you so you don't have to take them. For the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. How can we not fall down and thank him? The Bible tells us to examine our heart. So right before these men come to serve you the bread and the cup, as the Apostle Paul learned on the night Jesus was betrayed, the Bible teaches us to examine our hearts. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll pray for all of us to prepare for communion tonight. Dear Jesus, we fall down before you and glorify God. We thank you for healing us and forgiving us and saving us. And now, Lord, if I would come to this Lord's table in an unworthy manner in any way, would you forgive? Would you take those things out of my life? Lord, if there's someone not saved here tonight, let them let the cup and the bread pass by, but more importantly, let them come to know you. So I ask you now to forgive us, to cleanse us, and prepare us to partake of this cup, which is a symbol of your blood, and this bread, which is a picture of your body. Bless these elements now, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name.